invite you at this time to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. In this chapter, we see not only the, the narrative of Christ's resurrection, but we also see how the resurrected Christ spent the very first Easter with his disciples. So we'll be considering uh, the whole chapter and reading the whole chapter. So Luke chapter 24. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And, th- and as they were frightened and bowed, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were, they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you, have, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets And the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Many Christians today see the value, recognize the value of Christian community, Christian friendships and relationships. They see the value of the word of God, reading the word of God privately and with their families, of even listening to teaching about the word of God. But what may not be quite as clear is why Sunday is so important. Why is it so important that we do these things on Sunday? I think this is an especially important question in light of living in and and in this COVID-19 era where many churches have had to go online, some churches are still online. I think people are asking this question. I'm in a Bible study. I I get together regularly with Christian friends. I may listen to podcasts about the Bible. What's so important about Sunday? Well, many societies and cultures, countries, 
set aside particular days throughout the year to remember uh, individuals or a group of individuals who have done something significant for humanity or something significant for uh, their own country. We see that in our own nation with holidays such as Martin Luther King Jr. Day or Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving, the 4th of July. And the Christian church has historically done this as well as we commemorate the various stages of the life of Christ. In fact, today we are celebrating one such, or one of those events, Easter, as we are especially remembering and, and celebrating what Christ did that third day after he was crucified. In fact, the early church, uh, they, in the, in the second century, they thought this was, this was so important that they almost split in the second century over what day each year they were going to celebrate Easter. Now in our passage, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus isn't, isn't interested in, in what day each year Easter will be celebrated. That is, he's, he's, he isn't interested in setting up an annual holiday. It's not that an annual holiday such as Easter is bad or, or can't be beneficial. Indeed, uh, and indeed, it can be very beneficial. But that's not on Jesus' radar here. Rather, what Jesus is seeking to do here in our, in our chapter is to establish a weekly holiday in remembrance of this momentous event of him leaving that tomb the third day. There are many, many benefits, many, many implications of the resurrection. In fact, we... We confess some of those benefits in the catechism. It's tied to our justification. It's tied to our sanctification, our glorification. But here we see another benefit, another implication. That as Christ left that tomb, he was establishing a new holiday for his followers to continue to to celebrate throughout the ages. So here in Luke 24, Luke chapter 24, we we not only see in the first 12 verses Christ's resurrection, these first women who go to the tomb, but then we see how the resurrected Christ spent the first Easter with his disciples. And we have a pretty detailed agenda of what they did on the very first Easter, the very first holiday that our Lord established after his resurrection. So what I would like us to do is consider how Christ, the resurrected Christ, spent this very first Easter and then consider how that is to set a pattern for how we celebrate, not just one day a year, but every first day of the week as we think about, celebrate Resurrection Day each and every Sunday. So we'll consider just two points this evening. We'll consider first why we need the Resurrection Day. And then we'll consider what we do on this Resurrection Day. So first, uh, we'll consider we need the Resurrection Day. We need the Resurrection Day. This chapter begins with the the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of of our Lord and Joanna uh, visiting the tomb of our Lord, and they're bringing spices, which was customary in that day as part of the grieving and mourning process. As they approach this tomb, they recognize, they see that this great stone, which would have been blocking the tomb, is rolled away, 
which would have been odd, and then they continue in and they, they see that it's empty, there's nothing in there. I would imagine that their, their grief, their sadness, would have instantly turned to perplexity and even fear. What's going on here? And almost immediately, two angels appear to them. We see this in verses 5 and 7. And they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? The answer is already there in the question. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. Angels have said, this, this shouldn't catch you off guard. Christ himself has, has testified, has taught you that this is what he was going to do. Remember, remember those words. And these women, they do. They believe. They remember the word of Christ and they believe. And then they go and return to the apostles, the disciples, and, and they relay what has happened to them. What they, what they saw with their eyes and what these angels have, have told them. And notice the, the apostles' response. They shrugged it off as a fable, an idle tale. How could this be? Christ isn't in the tomb. He, he's somehow resurrected. No, I saw with my eyes his lifeless body on that cross. So we see here this theme of, of the disciples' unbelief. And this theme continues uh, as we have this, this narrative. Luke zooms in on this narrative of two of these disciples as they are journeying from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which would have been seven miles in distance. And these two disciples are walking to Emmaus, and the resurrected Christ shows up and begins walking and talking to them. And Christ hides his identity from these, these two guys, and, and he, uh, he goes up to them and, and asks, well, what are you guys talking about? And one of these disciples, uh, Cleopas, says, what kind of question is this? Are you the only one in, in Jerusalem to not know what has happened in these last few days? Christ, the, the so-called king of the Jews, this controversial figure who we thought, we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But he was mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, crucified on, on a cross. This, this cursed death, this humiliating death. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel, to finally bring the Jews out of the tyranny of the Romans, to establish a new throne or, or continue this throne of, of David and Solomon in Jerusalem and make Caesar bow before his feet. But he's dead. He's crucified. He's in the grave. So we see them wallowing in, in unbelief and in, in despair and sadness and grief largely because they were expecting Christ to do things that he had never promised to do. They were expecting Christ to come and deliver them from the Romans, the Romans who were in power over them. Many of them feel oppressed, afflicted. 
And they thought Christ was going to come and revive this, this theocracy that their, that their ancestors of old enjoyed in the Holy Land. Christ never, never promised to do that. Rather, he was coming to deliver them from the tyranny of, of their own sin, and the power of the devil. Or to think of it another way. We see that these disciples were living according to what they saw with their eyes in their circumstances, and they didn't live according to what they had heard with their ears, not only from the mouth of Christ, but also from the Old Testament scriptures. They looked out at their present circumstances, and they may have even remembered some of the teachings of Christ, but they said, these circumstances seem bleak. The one who, whom we had committed our lives to is dead. He just allowed his enemies to triumph over him. Brothers and sisters, how often we do this very same thing. How often we live according to what we see with our eyes in our circumstances and fail to live according to what we hear with our ears in the word. This happens all the time. As we look around us with our eyes at our present circumstances, at a general level, as we even look out upon society and culture and see the rapid decline in, in morality, in, in ethics, see the, the decline in religion in our culture, and even the way in which our culture vitiates against Christianity. Or at a more personal level, when we consider our own trials and tribulations and sufferings that we are currently having to walk through. These circumstances seem to testify against the fact that Christ left that grave. That Christ is resurrected. These circumstances seem to just testify to, to chaos without order. But we know that the word is promised, that Christ is indeed resurrected, and he is our king who so watches over us that not a hair can fall from our head apart his, from his will. And so we wake up each day with this apparent contradiction. This contradiction between what we see with our eyes and our circumstances and what we hear with our ears in the word. And we're left with that decision. What are we going to live according to? Are we going to live according to our eye or are we going to live according to our ear? Our call to worship. We are blessed. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. We are to be people of faith. People who walk by faith and not by sight. So, beloved, what organ do you live by? Do you live by your eyes or do you live by your ears? Do you live not by what your circumstances seem to testify to, but what you, the Word of God testifies to? And we are called here. We are called here to live according to our ears. As you can see, we struggle precisely where these disciples struggled. We let our circumstances dictate our life. This is why we need a resurrection day. This is why we, needed, we need this holiday, which the Lord is instituting here in this chapter. We need a day in which the resurrected Christ speaks his word to us, breaks bread with us, blesses us. This leads us now to my second point where we consider these very things. Because it's these very things that are to characterize what we do on Resurrection Day. 
So first, uh, under this point, I want us to consider how Jesus responds to this unbelief by opening up the scriptures, by giving a Christ-centered sermon to these disciples. If you look with me at verses 25 through 27, we see Jesus' response to to their self-pity. He says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus' response is striking. His response is not to reveal his identity and say, look, it's I. I'm the resurrected Christ. I'm not in the grave anymore. He doesn't do that initially. What he does, he opens up the Old Testament scriptures and says, you've misinterpreted your Bibles. You should have expected this. The Old Testament itself said that Christ needed to die and on the third day rise again. If there ever was a sermon that I wish would have been recorded, it's this one. This redemptive historical sermon where Christ shows from all of the scriptures that he is the main character. In verse 33, uh, we read that these disciples, after hearing this sermon, their, their hearts burned within them. Burned within them. This teaches us that all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures testify to Jesus. And of course, we know the New Testament is about Christ, but here, obviously, the New Testament wasn't written. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And he summarizes these Old Testament scriptures by referring to the books of Moses. These would have been the first five books of our Old Testament, the Torah, the law. And then he says the prophets, which refers to the rest of the Old Testament. He says all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, they all point to me. This is amazing. The, the, same, the same medicine, as it were, that Christ gives the disciples is the same medicine that we have, we have access to. In fact, uh, it's, it's, it's important to establish that the Old Testament, the Bible, it's about Christ. But we need to ask a further question. What is it about Christ that the Bible testifies to? It's very easy, especially in our day and age, to make Christ the advocate of our hobby horse or whatever agenda we want to see pushed through. It's easy to make Christ a self-help guru, a social justice warrior. It's easy to make Christ the, an advocate of a particular political or economic agenda that we support. Notice how Jesus is speaking about himself. He's saying that the, the Old Testament testify to him. As what? Well, as the savior of his people, the one who came to die the death that we all deserve to die and the one who lived a life that none of us could live. 
Jesus as the second Adam who came to bring his people into the new creation, this is what he's referring to. This is what Christ came to do. This is what the Bible is chiefly about. The church father, Irenaeus, he lived in the the second century. He has a great illustration uh, which really illustrates this point perfectly. He compared the Bible to a bunch of jewels that an artist would use to build a beautiful tapestry of a king. The Bible consists of these jewels an artist uses to construct a, a tapestry of a beautiful king. He says what heretics do, and again, in this day and age, he was battling heretics, people who were taking the word of God, taking the teaching of Christ, and, and uh, interpreting it falsely, turning Christ into something other than a savior, a, the perfect God-man who came to achieve a free salvation. He said what these heretics do is they take these jewels and they reorder them and construct a picture of an unappealing dog or a fox. That's just the, the, the animals he used. And he goes to people who don't know what a king looks like and says, look, this is our king. This dog, this fox, which is very unappealing, this is what a king looks like. And that's what happens. When we make scripture, when we make Christ something other than a savior of his people, it's like we're taking those gems and reconstructing it into an ugly dog and saying, look, our king. We have to leave this tapestry as it is. It's a picture of a beautiful king, Christ himself, the savior of his people. So this is what we need. This is what we need to strengthen, to bolster our faith as we are very tempted to live according to our eyes and not according to our ears. The antidote is to hear the word each and every resurrection day and throughout the week. Our response should be a burning heart, a heart that burns. We see the main character of this book. We've all experienced those times when something just clicks when we understand something finally. I think that's what's going on here. It finally clicked for these the, uh, disciples and the apostles. These, these books, which have a lot of strange things in them, finally are coming together. The unity is being restored as they see it's all about this one Messiah, this one deliverer of the people of God. So we see that the resurrected Christ begins this day with his disciples by opening up the word and preaching this Christ-centered sermon. But then we see that they arrived at Emmaus, this, this village, this town, which was about seven miles away from Jerusalem, and the disciples urged Jesus to stay with them. And they still didn't know who he was, and Jesus stays with them, he eats. And look with me at verse 30. Verse 30, we read that when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed and blessed, and broke it and gave it to them. Now, what does that sound like to you? Where does your mind go when you hear these words? He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Well, my my mind goes to the institution of the Last Supper, when Jesus does this very same thing. In fact, in, in Luke 22, we see Jesus at the Last Supper saying, or Luke says this about Jesus, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Now, I don't think Jesus is actually celebrating the Last Supper here. We, 
we know that, as he says to his disciples at that same institution, he will not partake of this meal again until the second coming. However, I do think that Luke is trying to, trying to create this semantic parallel between this event as Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is breaking bread with his disciples and the Last Supper. What this teaches us then is that the Lord's Supper is a communion with the resurrected Christ. I think all too often we can, we can think of the Lord's Supper chiefly in Good Friday terms. It's somber. Uh, we are remembering the passion and death of Christ. We're remembering our own sin, which put Christ on the cross. And that's not bad. There is an aspect to the Lord's Supper that deals with that. It is a remembrance, no doubt. But it is also a communion. Easter Sunday also needs to be factored in in our celebration of the Lord's Supper as we are communing not with a, a dead Savior, but one who rose from the dead, who is reigning at the Father's right hand. This is a communion with the resurrected Christ. And therefore, there should also be this, this tone of festivity, of celebration, that we are breaking bread, just like these disciples were breaking bread with the resurrected Christ through the Spirit of God. So when we celebrate this Lord's Supper, yes, it's a time to remember, to remember our Lord's passion and death, but it's also a communion with our risen Christ, a time to experience, to remember, to be reminded of all the benefits we have by virtue of our union with this resurrected Christ. We have been justified. We have new life within us. We have the very power of the resurrection going through our veins, and we have that certain hope of being transformed bodily into the very likeness of this Savior. So we see that our Lord breaking bread with his disciples as they celebrate this, this new holiday, as it were. And after this meal, we see Jesus vanishes. And then in verse 36, uh, we see this very same night, Jesus reappears before them, and he blesses them. He says, peace, peace to you. In verse 50, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, which this wasn't on the same day, this was, as we read in Acts chapter 1, 40 days after this resurrection day. But he also blesses them, likely with an ironic blessing, the blessing which we will conclude our, our service with this evening. Now put yourselves in the shoes of these disciples. I would imagine that they would have been quite embarrassed. Not only did the Old Testament scriptures, but Jesus himself told them, told them to expect this, told them what uh, Jesus' true mission was. And yet, look at how they reacted this day. Filled with unbelief, filled with self-pity and despair. And yet, how does Jesus react? Jesus blesses them. He blesses them. And you'll know that each, each Sunday when we gather, we also hear the same blessing of Christ. To begin our service, to end our service, this blessing of Christ that comes to us. Not... not not to those of us who have our, our lives put together, as it were, but those of us who, who feel dirty in sin. Those of us who feel as if we're floundering in doubt and despair like these, these disciples would have been. Those who seem sunken in discouragement. This, 
blessing is for you. I think this shows us the, the gracious nature of our Savior. That this resurrected Savior is right now at the right hand of the Father, but he's interceding for us. We read that in Hebrews. He continues to intercede for us. He prays for us. What a comfort that is. He prays for you, particularly. He sympathizes with you in all of your various weaknesses, struggles, and sins. He sympathizes with you. As Isaiah tells us, he does not, he does not break a bruised reed. He does not snuff out a, a faintly smoldering wick. He's gracious with his people. And we see that here as he blesses. People who, who, in our own estimation, according to strict merit, did not deserve this blessing of Christ. He blesses his weak and needy people. So we see that this day has been filled. This first resurrection day was filled with the word, filled with the breaking of bread and this blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I mentioned, as we begin to wrap things up here, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, I believe that what Christ is doing here is he is establishing this new holiday, as it were. The beginning of the chapter began with that, that, that note by Luke that this resurrection occurred on the first day of the week. The first day of the week. Christ was instituting this, this new holiday, this Easter, not to be celebrated just once a year, but every Sunday, every first day of the week. This was a day that was to be filled with the word, with the breaking of bread, and with the blessing of Christ himself. Now you may ask, okay, I, I see that in this chapter, but did the disciples, did the apostles really think of this day, this first resurrection day, to be paradigmatic of every Sunday, of every first day of the week? Well, listen to uh, a few references from the rest of the Old Testament. I think, it, I think they, they, they did see this day as paradigmatic of, of every Sunday. That's how every Easter was to be celebrated. For example, Acts 2.42, we read that the apostles, uh, or the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayers. Acts 20, we read, on the first day of the week, what did the early church do? Well, they gathered to break bread and to hear probably the longest sermon by the Apostle Paul as someone fell out the window as they were falling asleep. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, oh yeah, when you gather on the first day of the week, take up a collection, take up an offering. Thus, we learn here in this chapter that one way, one way we can live in light of the resurrection of Christ is by celebrating Resurrection Day, not just once a year, however beneficial that is, but every first day of the week, every Sunday, as a means of strengthening our weak faith. So let us 